Welcome back to Toys on Tap. This week we take a break from interviewing a toy artist and we bring on Igor Vamos, the creator of the Barbie Liberation Organization and one of the members of Yes Men. Listen this week, you're not going to want to miss it. It's culture jamming at its finest. If you want more Toys on Tap, you can go to all socials at Toys on Tap. If you want to support the show, you can jump on the Patreon. And an easy, free way to support the show is to go on wherever you get your podcast. Like, subscribe, rate, review. It lets more eyes get on this podcast. Now let's get to this episode of Toys on Tap. and hoping it does something good it's not too bad now that's perfect yeah okay oh look at these shadows though <laughs> all right wait, don't worry we we'll see what happens when i do this just, uh, it's a little better maybe i don't know i don't use Still the video so you're good oh there you go yeah um, i was gonna wait for you to turn all these lights on before i told you that's pretty funny. Where are you anyway? I'm in uh, San Diego. Oh, holy shit. That's great. Yeah. Uh, I have something to show you, though. Based you off of uh, the BLO and my love for that whole organization and everything, um, I actually had made a shirt that Toys on Tap did with the flyer of how to do it on the back. Holy shit. That's amazing. Oh, my God. There it is. That is so cool. Uh, and it just says BLO in the corner. I'm going to send you one as a thank you for coming on for sure. Hey, can you record the video? Or uh, I would love to have a recording of this. Um, I might be, this is kind of a tough secret, but I might be making a documentary about the Barbie Liberation Organization. And that's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you because actually I don't know much about toys and you do. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 also like all this i was looking at what you're doing and all these altered toys and stuff i just want to pick your brain as well um so yeah and you know weirdly san diego so i i lived in san diego when when i did this thing back in 1993 nice and so and the kid i recently got in touch with zach zellen one of the kids who got the toys and he's totally excited to talk about it too so anyway does he, he still have it I think he does, and he lives in San Diego. Yeah, yeah. I think That's he still has it. Incredible. I might need to find him and just take a picture of it. Yep, yep. I'll, I can. I'll put. I'll put him in touch with you, and um, uh, I might be. I'll be out in San Diego this summer too. So, I maybe. Yeah. That would be awesome if you if like just let me know, and we'll. I'll buy you a drink, whatever you need, just so we can hang out. Oh, that'd be great. Um, before we go any further. Please introduce yourself and tell everyone who you are and what you're most notably known for. Okay, so my name is Igor Vamos. I do go by several other names. Um, one of the names is Mike Bonanno, which has been my stage name for a sort of activist prankster group called the Yes Men. Mm -hmm. And so we've made like three feature documentaries. The first one was released by United Artists. It was like a big film back in 2005 so a uh, big film a big tiny big film <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels felt big at the time because like it was in all the newspapers and people knew about it but 
From Kenner's Star Wars collection, each sold separately. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. This episode is brought to you by Elixir Toys, a Fubi creator based out of South Florida. Elixir is out there conjuring up toys that are best described as horror meets nature. His toy creations include Fun Gusting, the evil man-eating mushroom, Thick Gusting, the big booty chibi mushroom, and of course the seer, an evil shaman and conjurer of chaos. If you're wondering how often these new things drop, new drops come every month. And these drops range from different colorways, different pay apps, different artists collaborating with them, and they are so sick. To get your hands on these pieces and to find out more about Elixir Toys, you can find him on Instagram at Elixir Toys, or you can go to his website at ElixirToys.com. Probably the most famous thing I ever did in terms of pranks was in 1993, almost, you know, eight or nine years before starting the S-Men, and it was called the Barbie Liberation Organization. And in it, we switched the voice boxes of Talking Barbie and G.I. Joe dolls, and using a nationwide, nationwide network of friends, put them back on store shelves again to be sold a second time to unsuspecting consumers who brought them home, gave them to their kids, opened them at Christmas, and discovered that their toys had been sabotaged. And so the Barbies said things like, dead men tell no lies, or eat lead cobra. And the G.I. Joes uh, said things like, I love to shop with you. Mm. And um, it created a big media spectacle at the time. It was on all of the news stations. Um, but it, 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 it went from local news, mostly in San Diego and Albany, New York, to uh, national coverage, and then was actually covered all over the world as well. Places like Brazil, it was a full page of the uh, newspaper there, the largest daily in Brazil. And, you know, so it was, uh, that was my, my 15 minutes of fame, which then I milked for many years after. It's crazy to call something a prank when everyone around the world knows, it. like people just hear about it all over the world. It's so, it's a movement. It's a culture jamming, culture hacking moment. Um, so can you walk me back as we walk through this whole phase in 93, what made, what started the conversation to even want to do something like this? Right. So Mattel had released Teen Talk Barbie, mm -hmm. which was a talking Barbie doll. And, uh, she was released in 1992 and um, when that happened, one of the phrases that she said was, math class is tough. Yeah. <laughs> That's the exact phrase. It became math is hard. Everybody said, this is the math is hard Barbie, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was an almost immediate outcry from feminist groups and, you know, women's rights organizations. You know, it was just a bad message to send to girls that math is hard. Yeah. Even though, you know, for for me, math was hard too. So I kind of sympathize <laughs> with Barbie, but <laughs> um, but you know, that's what the toys said. It was they kind of put their foot in their mouth 
um, Barbie's slender, elegant feet went mm -hmm. straight into Mattel's mouth. And they, um, so they kind of reneged on that phrase. And they said, we're going to pull that phrase from the roster. But I kept thinking, what else does she say? And what could she say? And so I kind of just, I just wanted to find out because I thought I, I kind of had the prank thing in my head already. I was very obsessed with pranks and, and doing various kinds of, let's say, uh, cultural provocations. Here we go. And so I went and I, I bought some of the dolls and I thought that maybe I could actually put a pull string device into them. I, I was going to, I was thinking about like, what, what else could I make her say? Yeah. I, I had in mind putting her back on the, the toy store shelves. And so I did some exploratory surgery and it turned out to be a little bit hard to figure out how to break her open without um, damaging anything, you know, like, cause the, the, the glue that's used to hold the sides together was, you know, it was new, it was bonding well. And so um, it took me a long time to figure out that I had to insert um, some woodworking tools right over the shoulder blades, like right into the arm sockets, the shoulder sockets, mm -hmm. and then very quickly crack her open, like like breaking uh, a stick or something, you know, over your knee. It had to, it was an, a short, sharp shock. Yeah. It would break the body cavity open and reveal the electronics inside. Um. So I, I I initially thought that I would be like putting a, a pull string device in there because that had been previously the technology for talking toys. But the reason that Mattel came out with Teen Talk Barbie 92 was because digital storage chips had just been made available. So this was an era where there was a wave of talking toys mm -hmm. because everybody was trying to come up with uses for these chips that could store a little bit of audio, you know, and you could, you could take a little chip, tiny circuit board, stick it in a toy, put a push button in, and suddenly you could do something with a toy that hadn't been done before. And so it turned out Teen Talk Barbie was one of the results the first iteration only said four phrases, which is kind of hilarious and reductive, right? Yeah. So each one said four things in, sequ in sequence. They would just cycle through the four things. It was a very dumb talking toy, <laughs> but a little bit smarter than the pull toy ones, which would say one thing, the pull string ones. You know, it was a little record player in the older toys. You pull the string and then the tiny little record. And I actually went so far as contacting Ozen, O-Z-E-N, the company that made the guts for most of the pull string toys. And I asked them to get some of their samples because you could press a record for the little, it's basically like a tiny record player. Yeah. And I thought, okay, this is how I can record my messages and put them in the dolls. But they didn't fit. No matter what I did, they didn't fit inside Barbie's chest cavity. <laughs> so anyway so i was trying to i was like Ugh, i don't know what i can do with this i had nothing i could do with it so i because i couldn't get the record in so i kind of started to forget about it but i went over to my great aunt's house my great aunt is was in her 80s at the time late 80s early 90s maybe and uh she's a holocaust survivor been through many wars she'd lived in hungary she'd been through Quite a, she'd seen a lot in her life. And uh, I was telling her about this 
idea that I had for changing the voice of Barbie and the controversy. And she basically said, why do you even care about Barbie? I don't give a shit about Barbie. What about G.I. Joe? And that, that was like the little like light bulb, not in my head. That was her telling me what to do. And I was like, oh, yeah, one of those one of those rare opportunities to listen to your elders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, you just told me to go look for G.I. Joe in this toy store, which I did. I went and sure enough, there was a talking G.I. Joe that had been released because there was this whole glut of talking toys. So I, uh, you know, I, I opened up the talking G.I. Joe's and I found that there was a similar circuit board, similar chip. And then the challenge was just um, doing the transplant surgery. Mm -hmm. And the results of seeing Barbie uh, saying what G.I. Joe used to say or seeing G.I. Joe say what Barbie used to say was so funny and kind of poignant and revealing. It, it revealed things that you just that were invisible to uh to to me even you know as somebody who played yeah. with the gh when i was a kid like it just suddenly and, and so that ended up being the 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 recipe yeah for the Barbie liberation organization you know is, and uh yeah what is so crazy about this is um as you research the barbie liberation organization video after video pops up and there's um one of you on your team had to have done the there's a, a video where um, it's a picture of Barbie and it's like her mouth moves says, hi, I'm Barbie. And this is the yep. BL and it's amazing. And and I'm going to, I for sure want to hear about that as well. Um, but then there was this video on a news station that went through that showed how to do it. And I couldn't tell if you and the organization had planted it on the news station or if they just unintentionally we're showing people how to do this. It was such a weird dynamic. Right. Okay. So first I'll start with the video of Barbie speaking. Mm -hmm. um, Hi, I'm Teen Talk Barbie, the spokes doll for the B-L-O. That stands for the Barbie Liberation Organization. We're an international group of children's toys that are revolting against the companies that made us. We've turned against our creators because they use us to brainwash kids. They build us in a way that perpetuates gender-based stereotypes. Those stereotypes have a negative effect on children's development. We have set up our own hospitals where we are carrying out corrective surgery on ourselves. Now we say things like this. Troops, attack that Cobra tank at the command post. No I donated my voice to a G.I. Joe, because they want to be free, too. They don't want to say all that violent war stuff. Now he says what I used to say. Want to go shopping? I love school, don't you? Ten such a dream. Will we ever have enough clothes? After we finish our corrective surgery, we climb back into our cartons and are shipped to stores everywhere. And that is um, the... Uh... The person playing that role, um, his name is Emil Devereaux. Okay. I know it's maybe it's a little confusing because it's Barbie, 
but um, this is a trans man who mm -hmm. at the time was a woman mm -hmm. and had been uh, acting as a performance artist uh, doing these performances uh, as Barbie, actually becoming a kind of Barbie as the last gesture before he transitioned to become a man, like mm -hmm. right afterward. And so it was really interesting. And, and I mean, for me, I've reconnected with Emil recently because we're working on a new project together. Yeah. Secret. <laughs> and it was, it's so interesting because I was so kind of oblivious at the time that he was actually the key to like this whole project because he understood this in a way that I had no clue about. I was just like, you know, um, kind of bumbling through it. Like, um, and so, so we got together to make that video and he actually kind of wrote and some of it was like ad hoc, just like coming up the lines as we went. And um, I got some other friends who were good with the switchers, you know, video switchers and stuff to uh, uh, line up and shoot that thing. Because at the time, of course, we we're working with analog video equipment, Yeah, you know, pre-digital. And so what you had to do for that was a live shoot where you use the switcher to open to to put a wipe on the screen just a part way. So you had two layers of video. The live layer, which was Emil behind the mask, and the mask was the Barbie. Mm -hmm. And so we literally had one camera shooting on a little Barbie's face, and then the other camera was on Emil's lips. And we just opened the wipe up and lined them up so that so that they fit. And then Emil basically um acting as Barbie claims responsibility for switching the voice boxes of Barbie and G.I. Joe dolls. And in the video, we made a little kind of video with the, the Barbies um, operating on each other, like holding the soldering iron and, um, and, uh, and, and taking each other apart and reassembling themselves in G.I. Joe. And um, we interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures. DOV2, we have engine failure. We must crash land on DKE Toy Planet. Oh my, we're doomed. Wait, salvation. Hooray, we've saved DOV2. Limited edition custom artist made action figures and DKE toys. Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures. DKE. And, you know, this sort of militant but happy Barbie voice of Emil uh, as Barbie um, explains why, you know, to get away from these gender-based stereotypes and to reveal something about the the toys themselves. And, and then um, we sent that tape to news stations. So there's a whole... The reason that it became a national media event was in part because uh, we were using it as a video news release, you know, so we were basically um, making sure that the news knew what was going on and who was responsible when they started getting calls from the people who'd received the dolls. Mm. And the dolls themselves had the phone numbers of the local media inside the packaging. So we added a layer to the packaging that that made them um, made the consumer um, call the news. So, yeah, and that, that was it's a very fun, playful video that um, you know I was lucky to have just uh, sort of 
accidentally gotten the right collaborator for yeah <laughs> who kind of understood like more about what we were doing than 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 I did having instigated the project um and then uh yeah it just was like a super goofy and fun thing now now the news coverage that includes this newscaster um who's actually from San Diego his name is Mike Real who's the the anchor in the newscast that you saw that's a that's a video that I made after the whole thing went down in order to kind of create a sort of goofy experimental documentary about the whole project. So I cast the whole thing as a newscast okay. and did a lot of like chroma keying of, and so Mike Reel was actually a uh, journalism professor at San Diego state. And he agreed to come in just, he was a friend of a friend of a friend and he agreed to come into the studio and be the newscaster for the Barbie Liberation Organization newsreels, um, which had in it a home surgery demonstration. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the video of the, the surgery with uh, Dr. Krista Erickson, who was a um, fellow grad student. I went was in graduate school at UC San Diego. And Krista was like kind of sciencey, you know, kind of, uh, person who agreed to act in the video. <laughs> yeah. Just incredible to see like on top of the toys, then the spreading of the news and how it was just captivated. Um, I think I want to walk back just a, a little bit before we go forward. How did you come up with the name Barbie Liberation Organization? Right. I think, you know, it's so interesting today. I, I really think things through and I second guess everything. At the time it was just like, oh yeah, that's the right name, you know? Um, yeah. But it was related to the, uh, you know, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 93 was something that was on everybody's minds because they were in the news all the time. Um, I mean, in recent years, they're they've been replaced by many other terrorist organizations <laughs> or many, I should say many terrorist organizations. I'm not going to even call them a terrorist organization. The U S labeled them as such, Yeah, you know, whatever their political party, et cetera. But, um, and at the time, I mean, this was before nine 11, it's 93. It's like uh suicide bombing was even a fairly new thing at that time. You know, it was not this, Terrorism didn't have the kind of weight that it did does now. And so adopting the name of a terrorist organization, um, you know, or, or adapting it to our purposes was kind of funnier at the time. Yeah. <laughs> like, like if we call if we had a toy organization that we called like ISIS now, it'd be kind of weird, you know, to have like a to, to like we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't yeah. make our funny organization a derivative of ISIS or something. But, um, you know, everybody knew what the Palestinian Liberation Organization was, the PLO at the time. So becoming the BLO was funny. It was just like a play on words. Um, that's how the name came about. And nobody ever suggested anything else. I was just like, this is what we are. <laughs> and as I went around to my friends and said, well, yeah, join the Barbie Liberation Organization. Everybody's like, yeah, right on. <laughs> <laughs> How many people at its peak did this include? So far, you've listed probably three or four between coming up with the name, figuring out how to do the box switching, 
video editing how many people altogether i would say about 30 to 40 people maybe a few more maybe a few more and i'm finding out as i go and uncover it as i like peel back the layers right now i'm going through the archive and like because i don't remember a lot of it i'm going through the archive and i'm i'm finding out rediscovering who was involved um because i'm interested in making a doc film about it and and as i as I dig deeper, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's more people than I actually remembered because, you know, like I was just describing one little moment, which is when we made that video um, with Emil playing Barbie. And I was there. But in addition to Emil, there was Eric Newson, who was a, a video producer, and Steve Anderson, who was like the video tech and like they were heavily involved with the thing, you know, mm-hmm. for months helping out with the thing. And then also helping when I was doing post-production. And then when I think about it, like some of the other video work too, I did in the studio and there were other people who collaborated and were involved and all the people all over the United States who, who distributed the toys, you know, and some of them I can't even remember. Like somebody I know lived in Oxford, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. That was one of the hubs. And I can't for the life of me remember who it was. And I know that they were there because I have these patient reports. That So when I, when I asked people to buy the toy and send it to me with the receipt, I'd send them money. Mm-hmm. Um, I had gotten a little grant, tiny grant, arts grant, um, but enough to buy like 100 Barbie dolls, which yeah. was a lot at the time for me. Um so they would buy the toys, send them to me to do the surgery, and I'd send them back. And when I did, I would fill out this patient report. I'd made up like a medical kind of looking report. And as the doctor, yeah. <laughs> I've done the transplant. I would make sure to note which donor it was and where it was going. And I sent a bunch of these things to Oxford, Mississippi. I can't remember for the life of me who the hell I know that lived in Oxford, Mississippi. Yeah. So this is that kind of thing where I'm like, how many people? I said 30, but it's probably 50. Okay. And um and honestly, I yeah, it's hard for me to yeah, even know. And then, you know, it's I also I got some parents involved that had kids because we wanted to have these redundant features. So it's like like there were those that happened naturally, like somebody bought the toy and brought it home, but I wanted to make sure. <laughs> Yeah, that it became a media event. So I also enlisted some radical families who are willing to like call the press and not tell their kids. So the kids still had a genuine play experience, but the adults kind of knew that they were part of a nefarious plan to fool the media. Um, But it wasn't really fooling them because it was real. They actually, I actually made sure that they went. I would place this, or somebody would place the the toy on the shelf. And then the willing parent would come and buy it right afterwards. So it was all true. It just was like a little bit more orchestrated than, um, you know, we we let on. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things. Well, from what you just said, it's crazy because it makes it seem like so many people are doing this surgery, right? The shirt that I've created was the flyer. So that like, yeah. it seems like that was going out as well. Um, yeah. 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 And actually you mentioned the flyer and then I'm like, oh yeah. So that's another person who worked on the thing. Cause my friend, Matt McElligott, who was an illustrator at the time and uh, designed the flyer for me. I, I asked him like, can you turn this into something that 
people could follow because it, it's a little bit tricky to do the mm -hmm. surgery, you know, um, it's, uh, and he was great at making things make sense, you know, and I just was like, took a bunch of photos and he's like, yep, sent me back the design for that thing, which, uh, I mean, it was cool. I remember the time I was like, whoa, because he designed it on the computer too. Like yeah. And everything. And I was like, whoa, he did that on the computer. Wow. Yeah. Like it was that era where that was still impressive. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, that was like a whole second wave because basically after it happened at Christmas and there were all these people who wanted to do it because they, they saw it in the news and they're like, I want to do the surgery on my Barbie. So uh, Matt drew up the instructions and we got those out there. And there were a bunch of people who took matters into their own hands, became Barbie Liberation Organization members and did the home surgery. <laughs> That's so good. You know, one of my, I, I was saying one of the favorite things that I have about this is the more you research it, no one really knew how many Barbies this had impacted or how many GI Joes. Yeah. And the numbers between websites differ from like one to 10 to 10 to a thousand to, and it's like the numbers are so catastrophically different that no one well, would have I ever can, been able. I can tell you now definitively yeah. that I have about a hundred patient reports okay. that I filled out, which means that I did about a hundred of these surgeries. Um, I told the press that I did 300. And that's because the first time somebody asked, I was going to say, say I, 100 seemed like too few. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, uh, 300, you know, and I actually, in hindsight, I would, I should have said 3000. But I knew how long it took me, like some of these surgeries took me, you know, particularly getting Barbie, uh, getting GI Joe's chip from the talking the duke commander into barbie was like an eight hour job because i had to take the chip off of the circuit board and rewire every contact with a with a loose wire mm -hmm. so that i could mash it up so that there was no more board there because to fit it into the smaller chest cavity of barbie there's a lot of space in gi joe yeah. And fit and the and the GI Joe chip was big. It was like as big as Barbie's chest cavity. So it was just it was a matter of basically like reconfiguring with no board, and that just took a long time. It's not complicated, but it's tedious. And yeah. so it was like, oh, I, I I was looking at their patient reports. I was like, God, that surgery took me eight hours. So you do a hundred of those, you're like, that's a hundred days. I mean, it wasn't that, but yeah. it was. A lot of time of me in my parents' basement. I, that's where I was working at the time. <laughs> in my parents' house in the basement. Like, you know, doing this obsessive, absurd um, cut and paste electronic, you know, ritual. <laughs> yeah. Did you, you were sending out for all these people to buy well, okay, I got to pause there. You said you got an art grant. What art grant funded yeah. this? Well, okay, so based on previous work, I had been awarded a New York Foundation for the Arts, mm -hmm. which was a, like an artist fellowship. So uh, basically, I had done a bunch of art projects before this. I was 
I was probably 25 years old, but I'd done a bunch of stuff when I was in college that, um, and I applied, I was, I applied for this fellowship and got it. Yeah. And so, uh, I was amazed. I was at the time it was like down in, um, I was hanging out with my girlfriend down in like Costa Rica. She'd gone down there to start a language school. So I went down there with her and I was, you know, kind of just like one of these post-college losers, just an itinerant loser. I was just hanging out, trying to figure <laughs> out what to do next. But I'd applied for this grant and I'd done these sort of weird interventionist projects before when I lived up in Portland. And the peer review committee who looked at the grant proposals thought I was worthy of getting this very competitive fellowship. And so I got this message that I I, I had to come home and claim my $7,000. It was like a huge amount for me at the time. It was like an astronomically huge amount of money, yeah. $7,000 in 1993. You know, it was like jackpot. And so I packed up my shit, went home, and... I was already at the time thinking about what Mattel could say. So they didn't give me money to do this project. Thursday night, 7 p.m. YouTube Live, it's Toys Alive! Toys Alive! Toys Alive! There's way cool artist unboxing. It counts under 1,000 followers. Art out there for 30 bucks or less. Collector Spotlight. Current upcoming shows and drops. Giveaways. Short chats with artists. News from the hood. 100% indie all the time. That's Toys Live. Thursday nights, 7 p.m. PST, YouTube Live. They gave me money based on past artwork. Okay. And and then I was able to use it to, <laughs> to do this weird-ass thing, but, you know, um, which, in hindsight, was a very, very uh, cheap investment for the return. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you look at it from the perspective of, like, you know, if, if this was an advertising campaign, it would have been hundreds of millions of dollars. It just, uh, you know, it, it it got so much attention. It's just that uh, it 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 yeah, it wasn't. And I was really lucky to have had that opportunity though, because um, it was kind of like it just gave me license to play a little bit more because I could also all those people around the country. I could tell them, yeah, I want you to buy me it. I want you to buy this doll and send it to me. But for each of those people, it was like, I had to spend like 50 bucks because the talking Barbies are expensive. They were like yeah. 30 bucks, which was a lot for a day. Yeah. And then they had to send them to me. And so there was like already this whole thing. So I, I like sent out, but it enabled me to like send 50 bucks to a bunch of friends and say, can you help out yeah. with this weird ass thing? And I think a few people turned it down. A few people got really worried. They start. They said yes and then no, because they were worried about like getting in trouble. And uh, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> no one got in trouble. Nobody yeah, um, I think. And then on the flip side, you had to also get the GI Joe hardware. So does that mean? Did you also replace the GI Joes back on the shelves, or did you just rip those to shreds to get the hardware out of it? Uh, okay, wait, can you explain that question again? Did I? Yeah, um, because you had to get G.I. Joe's so you could take their talk box. 
correct? Right, right, right. So, did you so, return them as well, or did you just shred them? Yes. So the story actually gets a little more complicated here because um, when I started the project, the only G.I. Joe talking action figure was a tiny little guy. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what he's called exactly, but he was about whatever the six inch size, you know, or the five inch size. I don't remember. And he had a backpack on and the backpack is what talked. Okay. And so, and, and, and so initially I was harvesting a lot of those voice boxes, but also, um, but he had already sort of like, he had come and gone really quickly. He got discontinued so they could release Duke, the talking Duke doll, which is the actual, uh, whatever it is, 12 inch tall action figure yeah right? there it is and um and so so duke was the big guy you know and then i was like oh so duke is the right model for the transplant yeah because he's kind of the right analog for barbie whereas there's the little guy it was kind of a weird weird swap um and then the little guy they discontinued quickly and then it was immediately almost gone from the toy store shelves mm -hmm. i um bought a bunch of them and um and I was trying to use their um, their guts because they went on sale, so they were really cheap. But um, but then uh, eventually, then it became just uh, when it became a full on just straight up transplant. I was able to um, take the the guts from this one and put them in into Barbie as well. Unfortunately, her head came off yesterday. <laughs> I'm okay. It just came off really recently. And here's her head. I, um, she's not talking right now. I, I'm yeah. right now, for those of you who can't see because you're listening, I'm holding up one of the teen talk Barbies um, that unfortunately my child pulled the head off accidentally yesterday while trying to demonstrate it. Um, <laughs> but um, but G.I. Joe still makes sense. Listen, here we go. He can barely hear what oh he says. Oh my gosh! Yeah, do you at cheerleading practice. Yeah, Wait, let me see. What else does he? Do? I gotta, gotta. Oh, it's the wrong sign. Okay, here we go. Are friends coming over tonight? We could start a business. I love trying on oh, hats. That's funny. See you at cheerleading practice. <laughs> I mean, and it's those four phrases. Yeah. Add absurdum. You just keep pressing the button and. She's, I mean, he says the same things over and over again. Um, anyway, yeah, it became a swap. And then these went back on toy store shelves too. Okay. So they both were being replaced. And yeah. So there's yeah, potential you were spending 60 bucks just getting the two toys, not including shipping, not including any of the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that's why, like, you know, at a hundred toys, it was actually like taxing my budget quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like then you're we're like three to four thousand dollars in, you know, just to just to buy the supplies and pay for the mail. Yeah. Um, you know, to 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 pull it off at the scale that it was at, which and all that was in my head, and that's part of the reason I didn't say more than three hundred. Yeah. You know, like like I, 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 it didn't matter. I could have said three thousand; it would have been believable. I mean, the thing was so weird and unbelievable that who cares what number it was? More would have been more. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, 
but it, it's, uh, you know, 100 was uh, was enough to make it happen. 300 was enough to make it a better story. And I learned things along the way, you know, yeah. um, like like that I should have said 3,000. <laughs> <laughs> Did um, Mattel or... Um... I mean, probably just Mattel. Did they ever issue a statement about you or yes. about what was happening? Yes, uh, Mattel. Uh, actually, the one of their their PR guys, um, one of the PR guys actually appeared on the news and did like interviews about it, um, and basically, you know, said that this is not what Mattel believes, and you know, just uh, kind of uh, brushed it off and. Mattel issued a very, very curt statement, but I don't, I don't know of any actual interviews that they gave about okay. it. You know, um, I mean, in recent documentaries, I watched that uh, the what is the toys series on Netflix? The toys the that toy, made us. The toys that made us, yeah. and uh, I noticed that one of the former um, VPs or heads of marketing or something for Mattel kind of alluded to it a little bit because she talked about the math is hard Barbie, but they don't talk about this. The they'll talk about the kind of mistake, you know, that yeah. dark period of issuing the math is hard Barbie, but they don't directly. I think it's quite taboo to directly talk about the Barbie liberation organization. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I mean, they've done, they did, I guess they were always in hot water. I had a, another, um, person that had worked at Mattel at one point on the podcast. And he was talking about how when he went in and he was like working with his ideas with the team, there was one like incident after incident for a while between the teen talk Barbie, between some kind of eco thing because they were destroying the rainforest or something was happening. Yeah. 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 So that's a a key section. Yeah. Yeah. I know. But just kept going. And he, um, he said you couldn't really keep up like inside. No one really talked about it. They just saw yeah. that it was happening. So no one really wanted to talk about it when he was inside. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, but of course, inside of Mattel, they've, you know, they they addressed these things. They obviously took it seriously enough to, uh, and I'm not saying they took the Barbie Liberation Organization seriously enough, yeah. but they took the criticism uh, that was out there in in the culture at large, serious and seriously enough to overhaul the entire line of Barbies. So now she can do anything. Yeah. Math is no longer hard. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're kind of at the thirty year anniversary this year, mm-hmm. um, which is so crazy to say out loud. I'm I was born in nineteen ninety, so it's like. That happened before I had any recollection of what was going on. But now yep. that we're at the 30-year anniversary of this, and you look back over the course of, I mean, your impact over the culture in doing so, what are some things that pop up that, like, either you would have done differently or that you were just so happy that it happened the way that it did? Yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't too long after I had done that Barbie liberation organization thing that I realized that I was operating kind of in a, in a bit of a vacuum, like in recent years, I've come to realize that if you're doing a sort of 
a publicity stunt with a message like that. It's mm -hmm. best if you hook up with an organization that has an ongoing campaign, you know, and, and figure out exactly how you're tying into that campaign so that you have the, the maximum impact. Yeah. This was this kind of gonzo thing. Like I didn't really know what I was doing in, in a sophisticated way. I just knew that I wanted to do this weird ass thing and it was going to be fun. And it was going to be like, like it was just a, kind of a weird obsession um and you know i don't have a regret that that's how it happened i just feel like i could have made it more effective because yeah. that amount of attention is so hard to get i mean on a on a seven thousand dollar budget yeah. <laughs> you know it's like it was like really like globally famous you know for a week it was like a top news item all around the world and um and so when you have a thing like that, when you have that, that's like really that kind of spotlight, you can turn into something else if you're ready to do it, if you're ready to, to pounce. And, you know, I've had moments when it's been like, uh, most of the time I'm thinking in terms of what the activists had on, like, how do you make it have the most impact? But occasionally I also regret not having figured out a way to monetize it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, because like in the in the intervening years, I've done tons of these crazy activist projects now, you know, and at work working with the Yes Man with Jacques, my main collaborator on that stuff. And things have gone great, but we've never made it, we've never really made it sustainable. I mean, I still have my day job working as a professor at a university, mm -hmm. you know, and uh and on some level, I'm definitely like regretting not having figured out how to convert it into something that is also also pays enough to just be doing that. Yeah. Because I love to just obsessively do this crazy shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Instead of have it be the weird hobby that you do, you know, you put yeah. on your you go go home and go to your bat cave and then you <laughs> work out of the bat cave, you know. Yeah. And you have to go back to work and put on the glasses again and be that dweeb that you, you are in the daytime. <laughs> it, it's crazy that so many students probably take your class and have mm. no idea about some of the stuff that you've done and what you've accomplished in 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 just changing the dynamics of like social history. Um Tell me about Yes Man. We've talked about uh, that a lot, of, uh, but only brought up the names. Tell me about some of the other things that have gone on with this. I guess you, you've called it the prankster group. Yeah, so we, uh, we are a, I mean, we started out as a kind of duo, like me and this guy. Um, um, his name is Jacques Servin. Um, his stage name with the Yes Men is um, Andy Bicklebaum. And he, yeah, which there's a story of that too. It's like hilarious. But um, he had done another project that actually is really related to the topics of your pod podcast because he was one of the first programmers on a game, on, on well, on a game called The Sims. Okay. You know, Sim City was the first game done by Maxis, and then The Sims was the next one. It was a simulation, simulated family game. Yeah, he was, I think, the second programmer hired to work on that game, and um, he's like self-taught as a programmer. Um, and uh, he just, you know, he's living in the Bay Area. He was like a fiction writer, and he just was like, "Well, I better 
do this computer thing, and he was just... What is this, master? Deep in the darkest corners of our earth, digital sculptors are choosing body parts and combining them in unnatural ways. <laughs> they are making a mutant. The evolving group of worldwide toy makers has become collaborating and digital sculpting and making a mutant on Instagram. <laughs> yes, master. Making a mutant. Learn more on Instagram. <laughs> Join Making a Mutant on Instagram, a digital sculpting toy collab. Really good at it and just immediately went to work for this now you know massive gaming company yeah and he put uh easter egg into he basically was really frustrated at work um just because he had been working on the sims and that caught his interest and then they put him on this other game that they needed to make money called uh simcopter which was like a, was a helicopter simulation flying game with mm -hmm. and he added a bunch of code in there that he wasn't supposed to that um, made a bunch of stuff happen in the game that wasn't supposed to happen, including um, these boys in swim trunks would show up and start kissing each other. So that was <laughs> one thing. And then uh, another thing was that, I mean, but there was all this surreal content too. Like he has yeah. this kind of wonderful like sense of surrealism and play. And so like one of the characters that he introduced to the game was a, a red pig like a boar mm -hmm. that would go around and suck people off in the game. So it was like this blowjob giving like red, I call it the fellating boar. Yeah. And it went around and, I mean, it was like really crass and weird and funny. Um, and this would appear, it would come out on his birthday and, uh, and at certain times when you scored a certain amount in the game and um, it was discovered quite quickly though, because the, the owner of the company was, playing the game with his daughter testing things one night and it just happened and he was like so he jock got fired yep and uh it that became a media event because it it was he had a friend who worked for wired and was talking to him and was like well you did this this is an activist thing isn't it because this is like you put this gay content in the game and he was like i guess it is <laughs> <laughs> and so then his friend wrote about it and, uh, you know, and wired. And then it became again, a media spectacle that was seen around the world. And so we had a mutual friend who said, you two did these similar weird things and you should talk to each other. And together we founded a first an anti-corporate corporation okay. that was called artmark.com. And it was like a, a website where people could, it was like a community for anti-corporate activist projects that were weird, like the things that we both had done. And then um, we did that for a couple of years, and then we stumbled into becoming the Yes Men, which was basically uh, what we did was infiltrate business events. We impersonated people in power, and we gave speeches um, that were ridiculous and kind of humiliating to the people um, that we were lampooning. So we went around for several years representing um, uh, the heads of the World Trade Organization and then 
of different companies like Exxon Mobil. You know, we, we, yeah. So it's, and there's like three movies about it. The, the yes men, the yes men fix the world and the yes men are revolting. And if you're going to watch one, I'd start with the yes men fix the world. That was, that's maybe the most playful and fun. Okay. That's incredible. Uh, seems the most dangerous as you're like <laughs> impersonating people. Um, but I, when you do these activism, I, I guess projects or you do these activist things, do you have a hope that there is like change that spreads and that catastrophic things start to like domino effect? Or are you just trying to bring attention to the things at hand that are just awful? Yeah, well, I've thought a lot about this. And um, usually the actions that we do are meant to bring attention to a campaign at a particular moment when it needs more momentum, mm-hmm. right? So, so that's why in recent years we only work with activist organizations that already have a campaign going or a movement that already is pushing for something. And so you do this action that gets more attention and it kind of propels things forward. It's like momentum. So to give you an analog for this that historically everybody understands, uh, Rosa Parks sitting down on the bus, um, I mean, refusing to give up her seat on the bus, uh, is a direct action. It's an intervention, but it's it's a small um, symbolic gesture that plays a big role in a movement in which people are trying to get their civil rights recognized. You know, and um, and and so and but but many many people have been doing that gesture. Have been have been refusing to give up their seats. Have been doing the lunch counter system, the sit-ins, things like that. And so what we do is a similar thing. It's like looking for the most effective way to get attention at a particular moment, but we tend to use humor. I mean, Rosa Parks did a poetic gesture, very simple poetic gesture that was very effective and resonated with people. Um, But we're not Rosa Parks, you know, we're a bunch of jackasses. So we use (laughs) what we have, which is, you know. We we use the, the the jackassery to reach a different group and to kind of you know speak in a, in a way that I think uh, you know cuts across some of the usual barriers or the increasing barriers out there. You know, like when we started doing the yes men stuff, we had a lot of fans who were conservative too, who were not like you know they just thought it was funny, and and they also were like, yeah, you got a point there. It was a different yeah. time. You know, yeah. it was also a different time. People are like, I see what you're saying. And I think this. Nowadays, it's more like, talk to the hand, you know. Yeah. Like, I don't care if it's funny. I don't care if I laugh for a second. It's it's still evil. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And with these types of things, um, it, it seems it's hard to describe because you almost seem like a Banksy type character that is living like they're like in this same realm and same type of stuff, but you are out in the open public. You're in the open eye and you're the yes men are there and just willing to say like, this was us. Um, Yeah. Does that get you in trouble 
being so willing to be open about who you are and uh, public um, facing? It, it hasn't. I mean, there's been occasional, like over the years, we've had moments where people have like sent threats and stuff, but they're, um, you know, it's it's pretty clear that they're not serious people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I got this amazing hand-typed letter at my office that was just, I wish I had a copy of it right now. I'd read it out. It's like this crazy scrawl. And the guy lived only a few blocks away, but he oh. was, you know, his real name. And he was like, I think like, a, I think he was like some kind of war, senile World War II veteran yeah. who was like, and he was really pissed off about, God, what was it? Oh, it was when we, we published a fake New York Times newspaper that said Iraq war ends. That was the headline, right? <laughs> And this dude, this was in 2009, and, and and we distributed them in the streets of New York City. And it was a, it was funny. It was like people reacted to it in really, really cool ways. It was it's the final scene in the Yes Men Are Revolt. I uh, know the Yes Men Fix the World, their second movie. But uh, this dude was so uh, obsessed with the idea that we had told somehow some families of veterans who were still dying over there had thought the war was over and yet they were, their son was going to come home in a casket. So he had gotten in his head this idea that our fake newspaper was misinforming a bereaved, you know, widow or parent of a dead soldier um, who was, who was going to, whose casket was going to come home and they wouldn't even know it because they'd be expecting them to arrive alive and he wrote this crazy letter, yeah. you know, that was also like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fuck you up. I'm going to come, you know, get you and get you fired. And, you know, what, whatever, things that were contradictory. Like if you're going to kill somebody, getting them fired seems unnecessary, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, okay, well, uh, I wasn't worried. Yeah. I, I wasn't worried. I, <laughs> but I did kind of. I, I was amused. I was really amused by it. Um, and you know, in the in the in the early in the beginning, I, I think you learn though that fear is also a relative thing when it comes to stuff like this. Because there's people who li really live in fear, right? And there's people who really deal with hard shit, you know, their whole lives. But like, we're a bunch of white guys. I mean, now we're middle-aged white guys. You put on a suit, and you're a middle-aged white guy. And even if you go into like a room full of sharks like bankers who are you know billionaires who are like uh doing horrible things in the world there's going to be a level of decorum <laughs> that is that makes it hard for you to you know get in trouble in a way that's dangerous to yourself and even if the cops show up they're going to take your side because they're just going to be pissed that there's like they're in a room full of like super privileged people who are wankers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what's happened to us in the past actually like when when we're getting kicked out of a conference or something if they call the cops the cops come we tell them we're comedians and we did this funny thing and they're like on side they're kind of like you know they're doing their job they're like oh okay why are these people so losing their minds yeah. you know why are these other guys in seats losing their minds you did something funny who cares so yeah we've had good weirdly good results with uh law enforcement in those situations awesome so 
you've talked a little bit about it, and I don't know how much you want to share, um, but you have a project coming up. Something well, in your next. Yes, I am doing well. I'm I am doing a historical documentary about the 1993 Barbie Liberation Organization. We're gonna put together a film. You know, we if you've seen the toys that what is it again? The toys that made us. Yep. Seen that series. This should you know be of similar interest because this is like the interventions in the world of toys that made us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or this is, this is how we pushed back against being made by toys. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. You know, um, I mean, I, I was definitely the product of, you know, whatever the culture that we're in, you know, and, and, you know, some of the, the toys I had a uh, Joe Namath, doll i think mm-hmm. i mean i had gi joe's but i also had a joe namath and i i called him super gymnastic because uh he was he was held together with one piece of elastic and i i came to realize that when he fell apart one day because it yeah. was like you know i mean it was cool i called him super gymnastic because you could you could bend his arms and legs in any direction which i thought was like whoa yeah yoga master you know joe namath um <laughs> But I also had the Planet of the Apes things, you know, and these things, they they do kind of like, yeah, they live with you. They stick, you know, and uh, and you carry those kind of, I don't know, you carry it through your life, you know, in, 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 in ways that maybe you don't even know <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. So, so it was, it makes it extra fun to, to fuck with it later too, to be like, oh, what, you know what can I do with this cultural material, this, this thing that holds um, all of this meaning, you know? Um, yeah. And so and that helps. Yeah. <laughs> with the documentary, um, I mean, do you have a start date an end date? Do you have, when can oh, yeah. I give you all of my, the money I own in my life? So this happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> it starts now. Okay. We just started. And uh I'm actually going to speak to um this guy, Phil Bailey, who is a uh, kind of like our local Geraldo Rivera um in the in the, the the Albany area. I'm going to talk to him next week. So I'm going to interview him. It should be really fun because he still doesn't know. Okay, you heard it here for the first time. He still doesn't know that I was actually in the mall watching him buy the toy when he was reporting on it. Because, <laughs> you know, he had done that. He had he had uh, called the hotline and I, 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 I was answering and I happened to be in Albany. And I was like, oh, God, Phil Bailey. I know where he's going. I knew which toy store he would go to because I knew where WNYT was. That's the Channel 13 NBC affiliate. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, yes, I'm consulting with paperwork. And we have three that went to KB Toys in Colony Center. And then I jumped in the car and I sped over there and I put them on the toy store shelf. And I quickly walked away and I saw him come in the door and buy them. So it was like this kind of... So I'm going to tell him all this. It's going to be really fun. Anyway, at the interview, and he's he's like, I think he's got a real sense of humor, so it should yeah. be fun. Um, 
He shaved the mustache off, though. <laughs> oh, what a bummer. <laughs> yeah, he used to be really like Geraldo. Now, not so much. But um, I uh, we're, we're starting right now. Um, we don't have money, so if anybody has money and wants to get involved, please, you know, do get in touch. And when I say wants to get involved, I think one of the things I expected that we would be able to go to one of the major streamers and get money because I've made a bunch of films before. I have a track record. I have partners yeah. who are really well known. Chris Smith made the first Yes Men film, and you know he's like an A lister of doc production right now. Like anything that he wants to make, he can make. But because Mattel and Hasbro are now intellectual property companies and they have productions going, multiple productions going with every different streaming platform, there is a risk for the streaming platforms to commission a thing like this because they would they would be involved in paying for the production of a prank against somebody who is their bread and butter, you know, yeah. like, who's, who's like literally like a just cash cow for them. So um, I'm probably going to have to raise the money up front and either through investment or through a uh, donation and then make it and then get it on, you know, television as it were. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's, um, it's been a bit of a, a rude awakening that way. Cause I just thought somebody's going to want this. It's so good. You see all of these nostalgic things about the early nineties now on TV you know, and you and I'm, and when I watch them, I'm like, I have a story that's better than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I, I have a lot of good like footage too. I have lots of funny footage from that time period with, you know, doing the surgeries and going to the toy stores, and uh, I did a weird piece with French television where they followed me around. I was dressed as GI Joe, and my girlfriend at the time was dressed as Barbie. And we went and like put them on toy store shelves dressed that way too. Nobody said anything because we had a French camera crew in tow. Yeah. <laughs> How amazing. I mean, if there is, um, there, if you did something like a, I mean, I don't know what Kickstart looks like for a film, but there's a guy that makes toys that's in the community that also makes VHS tapes and, uh, oh, yeah custom sleeves and everything that's a way to distribute your movie totally to no that would be really good that's really funny i love that yeah i actually have to pick your brain about people to talk to in the toy world and especially the uh alt toy kind of um what do you call it that's toy adaptation people what, what's the name for that well it's a you know it's a modification yeah, it's a big scene. It's like um a bootleg toy scene could be a good descriptor, but it includes people um that make resin toys, 3D print, 3D sculpt, um oh. people that like do what you did with the Barbie. There's there are yeah. people that just alter toys. It's it's a big scene now. Yeah, I definitely want to talk to the alt slash mod toy people i mean i need i just i just need to basically listen to your podcast and uh and like get caught up because um i kind of had let this slide for too long 30 years i gotta get back in the saddle you know so yeah right now i'm at this stage where it's like if we go ahead and do this film 
and do it this year, it's going to be a crunch, right? Because, uh, yeah, there's. I can tell you the top secret part of this, but um, I can only tell you that off of the um, off the record. 